Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSellaCast podcast, hosted at podfeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, May 23rd, 2021, and this is show number 837. Last week, I told you that we had some listener contributions that would allow me to fully enjoy our little trip to see Steve's parents for the first time in a year and a half. We had an absolutely glorious time. First, we upgraded both of their computers to uh, Mac OS Big Sur from Catalina. And then when we visited his sister who lives in the same town, we happened to notice her iMac had this curious desert background. She was still on Mojave. So we upgraded that one. And while we were at it, we upgraded her MacBook Pro to Mac OS Big Sur from Catalina as well. Then our nephew asked us whether he needed a new laptop, so we specced out a shiny new M1 MacBook Air for him to take to grad school in the fall. In other words, it was a great visit with family. Many thanks to Ryan Winkler, Mike Price, and Helma Vanderlinden for coming through with the reviews you're going to hear this week. Wally Chwinski sent in a review as well, but I'm actually going to save that one for next week. All of you help me to relax and spend quality time with the people I love. Last week, I teased during Security Bits that Micah Sargent would be on Chat Across the Pond this week to talk about the new thread technology that's supposed to transform Internet of Things devices as we know them. Unfortunately, he's got a situation going on that has caused us to postpone. I'm really excited to learn about this from Micah, and uh, we're going to be recording the week after next, so on May 31st. So sorry about that tease. I knew I shouldn't have done it. I never do that, but I'm so excited. Anyway, I'm certain that we will get this uh, Uh, interview done and we're going to learn a lot about Thread from Micah. The new Apple TV remote is probably the most exciting device Apple announced recently. Steve and I picked up two of the 2021 Apple TV 4Ks, not because they were amazing, but because we wanted a flow down of devices in the house. (laughs) Let's be honest, we wanted the new remote. One of the things I was very curious about with the new remote was how the circular trackpad was supposed to work. With the most recent remote, we had a rectangular area where we could swipe left, right, up, down. But on the new remote, there's a black circular trackpad, but also a black ring around the remote with four white dots at 12 o'clock, 3, 6, and 9. It looked like both the circle and the ring might be touch sensitive, and I wondered what the difference would be between the two. Now that I have the remote in my hot little hands, it's weirder than I expected. It actually took me a while to figure out how to use that ring. The center circle acts just like the rectangular trackpad did before. You could swipe up, down, right, and left on the circle with your finger. This method is useful when you want to move a long distance in the interface. Clicking on the white dots on the ring moves precisely one position, up, down, right, or left, depending on which one you tap. This seems like a good user interface addition because swiping just one position has always been nigh on impossible with the old remote. If I wanted to move one position to the right on the old remote, my process was to swipe right, which would move move me, say, you know, three positions over, and then I'd swipe left with a little less vigor, and I'd go back two positions. That's if I was lucky, and I got to, to my desired location in just two swipes. Sometimes it was three. So now how about that outer ring? Well, it is indeed a touch surface, and it's where things get weird. Being a circular ring, it invites you to swipe around in a full circle, or at least, say, halfway around the circle. So let's say you're on the Apple TV home screen. You've got a grid of icons, and you're currently in the top left position. I assumed that if I swiped clockwise in a circle, the farther around I went on that ring, the farther to the right my cursor would go. If I went a little bit around the circle, I think it might go two or three slots. Halfway around, it might go most of the way across the grid. That is not at all what it does. 
I tried swiping around the ring, and the cursor got partway across the grid, but then it jumped down a few rows. I kept going around the circle in that same clockwise direction, and now the cursor started to go right to left. I was baffled by this behavior until I did some experiments. In order to explain the behavior, we have to picture the ring as a pie cut into four pieces with the cut lines at 45 degrees. So that gives us a top, right, bottom, and left quadrant. If we move in a clockwise direction, the top quadrant of the ring moves the cursor from left to right. The right quadrant goes from top to bottom, the bottom quadrant goes from right to left, and the left quadrant goes back up from bottom to top. Clear as mud, as my father would say. So let's go back to our grid of icons. If we start in the upper left again and smoothly drag around the top quadrant, the cursor will go a few to the right. But as we get into the second quadrant, the cursor will then begin to move a few down, and then a few to the left, and then back up to our starting position. If going across the top quadrant went all the way to the right, and then the next quadrant took you all the way down the grid of icons, maybe this would make sense. But it goes partway across and partway down. I played with this feature in Disney Plus, where I was faced with an icon for each of our family members. There were five profiles plus a sixth button to add a profile, so six icons across the screen. I swiped around the circle and it went from the first to the third icon, then it jumped down to the Edit Profiles button that is below all of the profile icons. If you want to use the ring to swipe, I'd suggest you always swipe just one quadrant at a time. To go all the way from left to right and back, just swipe repeatedly across the top or the bottom of the ring. To go up or down to a specific icon, then swipe up, down, on the right or left side of the circle to move uh, vertically. Don't go too far around that ring or you'll have no idea where that cursor is going or why. I did get a comment uh, from somebody, I forget where it was, but they said that the that ring works as a scroll wheel when you're trying to fast forward, in a, like in a video. So I haven't tested that yet, and maybe that's the only thing you should do with the outer ring. Okay, the other option is entirely forget that you ever learned the ring was touch sensitive. Use the ring's clickable white dots to go up, down, right, and left by single units. If you want to go farther, use the circular touchpad. It's the only way to keep from worrying your pretty little head about all this nonsense. I should give them one thing, though. I can now tell when the remote is upside down. I'm very delighted to bring to you a solution to an interesting problem, and it's an interesting solution, from Ryan Winkler. Today, I thought I would give you a review of the OWC Elite Pro Dual with three port hub. Let's start with the problem to be solved. Problem one, I just received my new M1 Mac mini and in looking it over, I noticed the lack of ports. Problem two, I like to have a time machine drive for all my Macs. I don't depend on time machine as my sole backup, but it's a nice tool to have when I accidentally delete or overwrite the wrong file. Problem three, I wanted a job drive or work drive for items that I'm currently working on. My M1 Mac mini only has one terabyte of storage. So for those larger home video projects, including the kids' school programs, family get-togethers, not sure I even remember those anymore, to be honest. But I hope to be able to refresh my memory soon and attend some of those again. I like to use a non-operating system drive to store these types of projects. As one does, I opened up the Amazon and started looking. I wanted to buy a, a USB hub as well, uh, a time machine drive and a uh, job work drive. 
Let's add this all up. I found a 4TB spinning rust drive, keeping in mind that the Mac Mini only has USB Type-C ports, for a little over $120. Then looking for a USB-C hub, I found them all the way from something I wouldn't buy for only 16 bucks to something I seriously looked at from Anchor at $46. Moving on to the Job Work Drive, the SanDisk 2TB Extreme Pro SSD caught my eye at only $333. Really? Let's look at something a little cheaper. How about a Seagate Barracuda SSD 2TB for $250? This was getting expensive fast. And by the way, are you thinking what I'm thinking? All these devices need a port to plug into. And I really don't have that many ports to begin with. Time to get a little creative. I decided that I really wasn't finding what I wanted or needed from Amazon. Maybe I would have found it if I looked long enough, but for external storage, I've had issues with Amazon no-name or strange-name devices I've purchased in the past. At this point, I decided to look over at our friends MacSales.com to see what they had to offer. I opened up MacSales.com's webpage, went to the drives, went to external drive enclosures, and what did I see? Dual bay drive enclosures. It was at this point that a little light bulb above my head went on. What if I purchased a dual bay drive enclosure instead of two single external drives? That would reduce the need for a port on the back of my already port-limited M1 Mac Mini. But would I be able to find one fast enough to support an SSD drive? Then I saw it, what I thought would be a perfect fit for what I was looking for. The Mercury Elite Pro Dual with three-port hub for $149. Yes, I found it. Granted, it was physically a little larger than I actually needed or expected. The Mercury Elite Pro Dual with 3-port USB hub is built to support two 3.5-inch hard drives, but its performance of up to 1250 megabytes per second was just the ticket and even had support for RAID 0, RAID 1, SPAN, and JBOD, which is actually the configuration that I wanted. And it also had a USB 3.2 Type-C 10 gigabit port and two USB 3.2 Type-A 10 gigabit ports. Yes, no need to purchase separate USB hub. I can get all that I wanted and only connecting one USB Type-C cable to the external port-deprived M1 Mac Mini. For those who cannot recall the differences between RAID levels, some families talk about the weather or politics at the dinner table, but at my dinner table, we often talk about the latest security breach or a company that has most recently been hacked, or in this case, put on our nerd hats and talk about the differences between RAID levels. What? Don't all of you have nerd hats? To be honest, I rarely take mine off. Oh yeah, what were we talking about again? RAID levels that the OWC Mercury Elite Pro Dual with 3-port hub supports. JBOD, our first setting, stands for just a bunch of disk. Allison recently talked about this. This is where you plug in the enclosure and each drive shows up independently, as if you plugged in each drive as a single drive. This is actually the setting I'm looking for. Now RAID 0, this is sometimes referred to as a striped volume. This is where the data is written to each drive contiguously. For example, if I were to split up a piece of data into four slices, slice one would be written to drive one, and slice two would be written to drive two. Slice three would be again written to drive one, and slice four would be written to drive two. 
RAID 0 is also the fastest RAID setting because the data is being read from two drives at one time and the overall space is additive. So if I have two 10 terabyte drives in a RAID Z volume, I would have a 20 terabyte usable single volume. The downside to RAID 0 is, while it's fast, if you have one drive fail, you lose all your data because using our four slice example, we would only have slices 1 and 3 if disk 2 failed. RAID 1, this RAID setting is sometimes called disk mirroring or safe RAID or expensive RAID due to the cost if you want to use it with a large number of drives. RAID 1 is when you have an identical copy or mirror of your data on two drives. The downside of this RAID is that you lose the space of a total drive. For example, if you were to purchase two 10 terabyte drives, you will only have 10 terabytes of usable storage. The upside to RAID 1 is that if you have a disk failure, you have the other identical drive copy so your data is safe. Span. This is really not a RAID level, but the ability to address both drives as if they were one big volume. For example, if I need to have a 20 terabyte working volume, but I only have two 10 terabyte hard drives, I can span the two drives so that the drives appear to the system as a single 20 terabyte disk volume instead of two 10 terabyte drives. The downside to spanning is that the drives work independently, so you do not get the speed benefit that you would if you used RAID 0. However, you don't always lose all of your data if you have a single drive failure. Now, back to the problem to be solved. At this point, I remembered that I already have an old internal 2.5 inch, 4 terabyte, 16 millimeter thick Samsung slash Seagate hard drive, both names are on the label, that I really have had a hard time finding a home for because the drive is so blinking thick at 16 millimeters, where most 2.5 inch drives are under 12 millimeters or even 9 or 8 millimeters. It really won't fit in anything. It's just too blinking thick. But in this case, it won't matter because the enclosure is made to fit much thicker 3.5 inch drives. So now that I found my time machine drive, what about the SSD job slash work drive that I wanted? Well, for this one, I decided to buy an internal Crucial MX500 two terabyte SSD. Would you believe me if I told you I found one on sale for under $190 at my local Best Buy? I couldn't believe it. I normally don't buy much of anything at Best Buy, but I couldn't pass this sale price up. The other advantage of the Crucial SSD is that I get a five-year warranty, unlike the Seagate Barracuda SSD from Amazon I was looking at that only has a three-year warranty. And Crucial's main offices are based just up the road a few hours from me. Over the years, Crucial has been very good to work with on items that have gone bad that I have needed or wanted to get warrantied. And at this point, I've lost count of the number of MX500 drives that I currently own. They really are decent performer and a decent price. Now time to put this all together, or as the box says, some assembly required. What? Only Phillips screwdriver will be needed? That's it? Where's the fun in that? No power tools? No spudger? No utility life? I drew the line and had to at least use a utility knife to open the box. I mean, you have to have some fun when putting these things together, right? Some of these toolless projects are just nonsense to me. Anything that doesn't need the purchase of some kind of new specialty tool to add to my toolbox so I can, as the wife puts it, have the right tool for the job, are just not fun. But we'll talk about the need for a second storage shed in my backyard to keep all of my specialty tools to another review. 
Do you think Allison would like a shed review? Uh, maybe next time. Time to open the enclosure. The OWC Elite Pro Dual with three-port hub has two Phillips screws on the back that need to come out for the top shell or cover to be slid off. Once these two screws are out, you can slide the cover off. You will then see the unit is designed to hold the drives connected on opposing sides of a middle spine. Each side of the spine has a drive tray that will hold either a 2.5-inch drive, the enclosure calls these SSDs, or a 3.5-inch drive. A nice feature of this enclosure is that it also includes a fan to keep the drives cool. Rather than cables, this enclosure has a fixed combo SATA power port that the drives plug into. Once the drives are plugged into or seated into the combo SATA power connectors, the drives will then line up with screw holes to hold the drives into place. For the 2.5 inch drives, again the enclosure calls these SSDs, there's a single screw that holds the drive in place. For the 3.5 inch drives, four holes, one on each of the four corners, are provided. Once the drives were installed, the cover slid back into place and the two screws holding the cover were replaced. I was ready to plug in the single USB-C cable into the M1 Mac Mini. The enclosure comes with a modest power brick, as the cool kids call them, which when plugged in immediately powers the drive enclosure on, as there is no power button on the enclosure. The cable length of the barrel end that's the end that plugs into the enclosure, is approximately three feet or just under. I could be more specific, but that would require me to go out to the specialty tool shed that I just can't be bothered to do right now. Actually, I think I misplaced the key to that lock, if I'm honest. The other side of that power brick is a standard C13 to three-prong power cable. The power brick does have its own little green LED so that you know you plugged in the cable to a powered plug, which I actually like. The enclosure has a few lights on the front, a green activity light for each of the drives. They flicker when the drives are in use. And then there's also a larger OWC light on the front that changes from a soft white to a blue when the enclosure is in use. As far as the software that's required, there isn't any. You just plug in the unit and the, and the operating system, at least my M1 Mac Mini, just recognized each of the drives. One thing to keep in mind, however, is that just like the unit that Allison reviewed, if you use one of the RAID settings, this unit does have the set RAID button that has to be pressed. Again, in my case, this wasn't required because I'm using the JBOD or just a bunch of disk setting, so each drive shows up independently. In my case, I opened up Disk Utility and formatted the spinning rust drive as Mac OS Extended Journaled. But once I selected the drive for use in Time Machine, it reformatted the drive as APFS after warning me I was going to lose everything. The 2TB Crucial MX500 drive using Disk Utility, I formatted it as APFS. For me, this enclosure works very well. It provides all that I need, which includes both a spinning rust Time Machine drive and a SSD job work drive, as well as the two USB 3.2 Type-A 10 gigabit per second ports and a single USB 3.2 Type-C 10 gigabit per second port, while only taking up one of the limited ports on the back of my M1 Mac Mini. So in the end, would I buy it again? Yeah, I think I would. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed. Thanks, Ryan. This was a great review. That's a really interesting solution. Like I said up front, it's it's a non-obvious solution. And I think a lot of people have the same kind of problem to be solved. So that's really slick. I never thought of a USB hub and enclosure doing dual duty like that. That's fantastic. Also, the live audience discussed it, and you have a fantastic voice and great delivery, so keep bringing those reviews to us. 
One of the most difficult challenges we nerds face is how to justify the purchases of new tech. Often this justification must be passed by the chief financial officer of the family. I think it's valuable for us to share our different strategies in order to help each other through this difficult process. I'd like to share a few of my tips by way of example in how I justified buying a 2021 12.9-inch iPad Pro when I had a perfectly good 2018 12.9-inch iPad Pro. One of the easiest and most successful strategies is think of the children. When I told my daughter Lindsay I was contemplating buying a new, the new 2021 iPad Pro, she said, Mom, you don't need a new iPad. I pointed out to her that her logic didn't hold up because she fully supports the idea of me getting a new MacBook Pro when the high-end Apple Silicon chips come out. Now I have a perfectly good 2019 16-inch MacBook Pro, but you see, she's going to get my 2016 15-inch MacBook Pro when I get the new one. Therefore, she believes I need a new MacBook Pro. She doesn't think I need a new iPad because her brother Kyle is the one who will be getting my 2018 iPad Pro. Poor Kyle is my Gen 1 12.9-inch iPad Pro, which is, of course, perfectly fine for his needs as well, but we never mention things like this in our justification statements. I'm also justifying the purchase by blaming my brother Grant. I sip my morning coffee whilst playing on my iPad in its magic keyboard. My cat Grace snuggles on my arm, and the two of us have a peaceful time together, even though it's kind of hard for me to type with her laying on my arm. Grant is currently at his house in Hawaii right now, and he posted a video on Instagram of his nighttime walk in the jungle where there were frogs croaking. My volume was up pretty high when I hit the play button, and the sound of the frogs freaked Grace out. She leapt up, caught one of her front claws in the hand-crocheted afghan on the bed, and started to tear away from me. I instinctively reached for her with both hands, even though my right hand was holding my coffee. I did get the cat loose without significant damage to the afghan, so that's a win, but I poured coffee in the bottom left keys of the magic, uh, the magic keyboard. Now, the magic keyboard survived for the most part, but the shift key on the left is really sticky and it doesn't always work. While this isn't a justification for a new iPad per se, would it make any sense to buy a new keyboard and not buy the new iPad? Of course not. The original Magic Keyboard is a fantastic keyboard, but it came in black and it has some disadvantages. I've gotten a couple of scratches in it and underneath the material, it's actually white, which means the scratches are super obvious. I have no idea how I scratched it either. I keep my, well, wait a minute. Now they think about it, there's that cat. Well, anyway, I keep my things pretty darn clean, especially keyboards, but I'm surprised at how quickly the black looks you know, kind of nasty. My iPad does go everywhere around the house with me when I move room to room and it goes on all my trips, but it doesn't stay super clean looking very long and it, it seems to show wear pretty easily. When Apple showed off the white Magic Keyboard, I thought it looked really pretty. Of course, it'll get dirty and probably more quickly than the black, but I'm very willing to clean it more often if it looks good after I clean it. I'm hoping any errant scratches won't be as obvious on the white. Our frequent justification that we use is that we need something faster. In the old days, this was the easiest justification. But darn it, Apple's been banking things so fast and powerful over the last few years that the improvements are pretty incremental, making it harder to even convince ourselves to buy new devices. The one exception we have is the M1 on the Macs. While my 2018 iPad is perfectly fast for everything I do with it, I figured the M1 would be way faster. 
And yes, I know it's supposed to be based on the A line of processors on the previous iPads, but we don't want to muddy our presentation with facts and data, so we're just going to set that aside. As you might have guessed, I bought a new 12.9-inch iPad Pro and the White Magic keyboard case. I did something I've never done before, though. I bought it with less storage than my previous model. Look at all my self-control. On the 2018, I bought it with the fi with 512 gigs of storage, but even with 83,954 photos, 2,868 videos, 22 songs, where'd those come from, and 146 apps, I still have 384 gigabytes free. That means I'm only using 128 gigabytes on a device with 512. So on the new one, I dropped it down to 256 gigabytes. Like I said, look at this self-control. I mean, I'm really, you know, I'm saving money right here. Now, I did treat myself to a cellular model, not because it's now 5G capable, but because of Google. That might sound funny, but here's my justification. When we travel internationally, I use the Google Fi cellular service. In the old days, before Google supported iPhones with their Fi service, but it still worked even though it was unsupported, I was able to tether my iPad to the iPhone. When they started supporting iPhones, though, they disabled that feature. How lame is that? So now with a cellular-capable iPad, I figure I'd be able to put one of my Google Fi cards in it and have more fun. Now, I wrote this article up and posted it as a blog post, and Ron Hebe says that he was able to tether now with a uh, Google Fi card from his phone. He's able to tether his iPad, and he was actually able to do the opposite with it. So maybe they changed their policy, but I didn't know that when I bought it, so I bought mine with a 5G slot in it. Now, you might be asking, how do you like the new iPad? You know, others have done exhaustive and very professional reviews of the new iPads, so I'm not even going to pretend to do that, but I do have a few comments. Overall, I can barely tell the difference in speed. I ran some unscientific tests side-by-side -side with the two iPads, and the new one's definitely faster, but for most things, it's only a wee bit faster. Web pages launch faster by maybe a half a second. Airtable launches faster. Photos scroll through a bit faster, and Affinity Photo launches larger files a good two seconds faster. The funniest test was when I tried launching a YouTube video on both devices at the same time. It was so identically the same speed that the music on both devices was exactly in sync. I recorded a smidge of it so you could hear it. What you're going to hear is the hold music before the NoSilicast live show. And believe it or not, this is going to be two audio sources at the same time, not one. Maybe if you've got a really well-trained ear, you could tell that was two separate devices, but I couldn't believe how identical it was. So in terms of launching YouTube, don't buy a new iPad trying to justify it on it being faster to launch YouTube. You know, I don't do large video editing on the iPad, and I don't do many complex and advanced edits on photos on the iPad either, so I don't think this purchase could be justified by the speed, even though the benchmarks prove that it's way faster than the previous models. I was a little bit worried that the 11-inch iPad people would be feeling seriously left out since their devices didn't get the snazzy mini-LED display that comes in the 12.9-inch iPad Pro. I know people are online are exclaiming with wonderment about this new display, but to be honest, for most applications, I can't tell the difference. 
Now, many LED displays are really designed to show high dynamic range. In order to see the difference in HDR, you need HDR content. I found a YouTube video designed to show off HDR, and I opened it on the 2018 and 2021 iPads, and also on my MacBook Pro using the Pro Display XDR. The 2021 iPad has what they call a Liquid Retina XDR display, and it does look as good to me as the Big Girl display. While I could tell the difference between the 2021 screen playing the HDR video and the 2018, I had to really look to see the difference. I dragged Steve in, and he looked at it too, and he felt the same way. It was better, but it didn't blow our socks off. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, oh, Allison, with your 63-year-old eyes, it's no wonder you can't see the difference. But remember, I had cataract surgery, so I now have literally the best vision I've ever had in my life. I can see every wrinkle in my face now, so I know I can see detail. However, I eventually found a comparison that did blow my socks off. I took a photo with my iPhone 12 Pro of the new iPad in its white Magic Keyboard. Taking photos of the screen is tricky. You have to lower the brightness quite a bit in order for the screen not to be blown out or the background to be super dark. So I did that on the iPad. I brought up the photo of the new model on both iPads, and that's when I could really tell the difference. This is kind of meta. I'm talking about a photo of the two iPads showing a photo of one of the iPads. Does that make any sense? So it's got a screen and an iPad in the photo. On the 2021 iPad, the screen in the photo is very bright and the text on the screen is super sharp and crisp, while the surroundings of the room, including the white magic keyboard, are still well exposed. The same photo viewed on the old iPad shows the screen and surroundings at pretty much the same brightness. The photo looks very flat when viewed on the 2018 iPad, and the text is pretty hard to read on the screen. So that's the magic of an HDR display. You can see that high dynamic range, the brightness of the display while preserving the detail in the shadows of the same photo. The difference is very striking. I put a, f a screenshot of it in the show notes, but it's kind of a funny image because if you don't have a high, uh, if you don't have a high dynamic range uh, screen, you're not going to be able to tell what I'm talking about. So it's, again, kind of strange. Once I saw that photo, I started thinking maybe I didn't find the right HDR video to watch because I should have been able to tell the difference. I found another video entitled Deeper Black's HDR 12K Dolby Vision, which showed food against a black background, and boy, howdy, could I tell the difference between the two iPads. Black on the new iPad is black. Black on the 2018 is a very dark gray. It's definitely not black black. Now the trick is to restrict myself to watching only Dolby Vision HDR content. Reminds me of the good old days when high def first came out and Steve kept replaying this Dung Beetle special just because it was high def. Speaking of the XDR display in the 12.9 inch iPad Pro, this tablet can actually drive the Pro Display XDR. While this is astonishing, it's important to keep in mind that the thing you see blown up on a 31.5-inch screen is still the single window interface of iPadOS. It doesn't magically get a true windowing system, so it's, eh, it's a bit silly. I did open my photos library with the iPad Pro running on the uh, Pro Display XDR, and I was able to flip through photos at a crazy pace with ease using the new iPad. So perhaps it would be fun to edit photos on an iPad with a giant display. Until Apple dramatically changes iPad OS, I think this is kind of just a party trick to be able to drive that big display. I'm very happy that Grant spilled coffee on my keyboard because I absolutely 
love the new generation Magic Keyboard. And not just because the white is absolutely stunning and so different looking from everything else I own. The keyboard itself is even better, and I love the key movement on the first generation Magic Keyboard. The throw of the keys is the same, and the shape of the keys is the same, but it's quieter. It's not mushy, but it's ever just ever so slightly more spongy to hit the bottom, which makes it less clicky and yet no less satisfying. You're going to have to watch this space to find out if this uh, white magic keyboard holds up or if it looks nasty after daily use. But for now, it is simply gorgeous. There was one big surprise with the 2021 iPad Pro. Remember during the announcement they showed a guy in FaceTime while walking around his kitchen and the camera supposedly followed him? They called this feature Center Stage, and I just kind of dismissed it as a gimmick. It is not a gimmick. It is positively crazy awesome. I can start a FaceTime seated and centered up close in the video. I can then stand up and walk backwards away from the iPad, and it zooms back, showing most of the room with me still centered, showing not just my head, but now it's showing my whole torso. I can walk back and forth to what feels like 180 degrees, I know it isn't, and the camera continues to pan and show me on screen. It's absolutely crazy. When I had Doc Rock on Chit Chat Across the Pond after the announcement, we talked about center stage and whether they're using the camera to zoom in digitally and then pan around within its normal field of view. I have to say, it's so smooth and so amazing that it feels like it's actually moving the camera, even though I know it's not. I also know it's not 180 degrees because the wide-angle camera on the new iPad Pro is only 122 degrees, but it feels like I can move that far. It's actually hard to get out of the field of view. And there's more. You could have two people in the frame and it keeps you both on screen at the same time. How many times have you been doing a video call where you and your partner or friend are trying to smush your faces together to both be on screen and one of you always seems to be cut off? No more. Not with this new iPad. Center stage, by the way, is not just on FaceTime. It's on by default in Zoom as well. And there's an API for it, obviously, since Zoom was able to do it. So maybe your favorite video conferencing app will get it as well. I seriously think that other than the white magic keyboard, center stage might be my favorite thing about the new iPad Pro. The bottom line is that Lindsay was right. I clearly did not need a new iPad, but I'm really excited to have the new hotness and I have no regrets. Oh, and there's one more justification. I spent so much money with my Apple Card between the new iPad and the new uh, 4K Apple TVs that my 3% cash back on the Apple Card was enough to buy the Magic Keyboard. So I practically saved money, right? If you've got a couple of bucks lying around and you find you get a lot of value out of the podcast work we do here at the Podfeet Podcast Empire, consider making a one-time donation to help defray the expenses of creating the show. The easiest way to do that is to head to podfeet.com slash PayPal and just pick any dollar amount you like. No donation is too large or too small. Thank you for considering helping the show. Everything is fiddly. Everything is fiddly. Back in December 2018, when I purchased my 2018 Mac Mini, I opted to save on the Apple tax and stick with the 256 gigabyte storage option opting instead to purchase a one terabyte SSD from OWC and put that in their Mercury Elite Pro Dual Mini enclosure. When setting up the operating system back on Mojave, I opted to move my entire home directory to the external. That 
ended up creating an issue where the external drive could not have FileVault enabled due to timing issues when starting the computer. The drive would not be unlocked in time and cause all kinds of problems. That did not stop me, however. I created a series of encrypted sparse bundle volumes for my important documents, medical, financial, SSH keys, and the like. And that has worked great for me for the past two and a half years, until recently. Now, I find that if I leave the encrypted sparse bundles mounted for too long, I find that the volumes have become locked and unusable. Forcing it to be ejected and remounting it fixes everything and makes it all good again. I haven't tracked down what causes the issue, but I've eliminated several things and I'm pretty much left suspecting it's something in Big Sur version 11.3.1, the most recent update. Everything is so fiddly. Oh my gosh, that is so terrible, Mike. That I, I don't I don't even understand that. I don't understand that could how that could possibly happen. I mean, encrypt, encrypted sparse bundles just like get stale. Well, uh, that was that was pretty good, and I, I like that you're actually using an OWC SSD in a dual mini enclosure, much like what Ryan just described in his article. But we don't just have one. Everything is fiddly. We have another one from Helma Vanderlinden. Hi, Alison. This is Helma from the Netherlands. I want to give you my version of Everything is Fiddly. Somewhere between 2001 and 2005, I got an iPod, which is my first Apple device, which I use as an external hard disk to transfer my PhD research between work and home. I got an iTunes account, and then it was just a name, no email address. I switched from Windows to Mac in 2005 when Tiger was released by buying a Mac Mini. The same iTunes account was used and I purchased some music and such. Somewhere along the line, I created an atme.com account and got an email box with it. When an Apple ID became a thing, I still used my iTunes account until Apple decided otherwise and I needed to have an email address as ID. I tried my atme.com address, but that wasn't allowed, so I used my primary Gmail address. I still used my iTunes account for all the purchases. Until the day came that Apple wanted a full email address for the iTunes account, and I still wasn't allowed to use my atme.com address. I also couldn't transfer the purchases over to my primary Apple ID, so I got stuck with a separate Apple ID plus email for my purchases. And of course, my atme.com address got an iCloud address alias. In 2013, I wanted to share my iCloud calendar with our secretary, who worked on Windows as one of the few. I couldn't share a calendar with a non-Apple address, so I tried to set up an iCloud account for her. That couldn't be done from a Windows machine. It had to be done from an Apple device. Long story short, after fiddling for hours, I managed to register the email address she wanted, but she was never able to get it to work. So we gave up on the calendar sharing. A few months ago, I discovered why. The email address was added as an alias to my Apple ID. Today, I decided to finally look into the matter and wasn't able to get rid of the alias. So I contacted Apple support. After some questions back and forth, Javier explained that my friend's email address was not an email alias, but an iCloud login alias. 
I have no idea how I managed to get that done. He went on to explain that he was not able to remove that from my Apple ID. I could, of course, change the email address of the Apple ID. Nope, not what I want. That's my primary email address I'm using for more than 25 years now. No way I'm going to change that. When checking my email on my friend's email address, I noticed I have two mails in the inbox. One from the moment I created the email address and one from the moment I turned on two-factor authentication in 2017. But none of the emails I have in my admin.com mailbox. So I asked Javier to merge the admin.com account and my Apple ID. I'm all for simplifying. But no, that too wasn't possible. I wondered if I ended up with yet another Apple ID. So I logged into iCloud.com with my admin address. There were the expected emails. And four calendar invites I've never seen before. I clicked on the account settings and guess what? I ended up in the management page of my Apple ID. So why can't they merge mailboxes? Finally, I asked Javier if there is a way to save the whole conversation and he pointed me to privacy.apple.com. I explained I just wanted the conversation information, not the information from my account, but no response. Sad face. Well, I don't like that they made Helma sad. I, this sounds like such a nightmare with this ununified Apple ID. I've always wondered how people ended up in this situation. And so it was really good hearing Helma describe how she got there because I always thought, well, why did you ever have a second Apple ID? Why didn't you just stick with the one you got when you started? Why would you ever do a second one? But it seems like there are often reasons to do this. And uh, I'm sad that they can't fix it for you. Well, that is going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions. Everything is fiddly recordings, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeed.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeed. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. Podfeed.com slash Patreon to become a patron of the Podfeed podcast. Remember that one-time donation I mentioned? Podfeed.com slash PayPal. If you want to join in the conversation, you can do it in one of two places. You can do it in Facebook. If you like Facebook, that's Podfeed.com slash Facebook. If you'd prefer not to be in Facebook, we're having a lot of fun over in Slack at Podfeed.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay enthusiastic. <laughs>